I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest in Ukraine, we welcome back to the podcast Dr. Elliot Cohen, who is, of course, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, where he was dean for many years. And he is the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at CSIS. From 2007 to 2009, he was counselor of the Department of State. Elliot, so great to have you back. Always great to be with you, Andrew. So, Elliot, I want to get right into this. You've got a new column that really struck me, and it's in The Atlantic now. It's called Let's Use Chicago Rules to Beat Russia. And I want to ask you, you know, this is this is hardball mafia stuff here that you're suggesting. I know that you think we need to get tougher on Russia in some way and help Ukraine more. Tell me about this Chicago rules. So the uh, the reference is from that great movie, The Untouchables, where Jim Malone, played by Sean Connery, who's this kind of tough old cop, tells Elliot Ness, who is out to get Al Capone, he says, if you want to get Al Capone, this is what you've got to do. They bring a knife to a fight. You bring a gun. They send one of your guys to the hospital. You send them to the morgue. That's how you get Capone. That's Chicago rules. <laughs> um, and it's uh, and it kind of goes goes from there. And the reason why I wrote it is I think sometimes uh, when we have these discussions about strategy in the rarefied atmosphere of Washington or New York or London or any other capital we get away from the grisly realities of what this is all about and what it takes to succeed. What the piece does is it looks at, okay, well, what were the different things that uh, happened at the Madrid summit, the NATO summit at the end of June? What are the commitments that we've made? And are we thinking about what we're doing to Russia the right way? And I, you know, my basic argument is that you know, the Biden administration and leaders of the West are doing much better than their counterparts did in, say, 1937 in, uh, when they faced a different kind of threat. But it's still not up to really what's needed. And that's true in several respects. The first has to do simply with objectives. You know, the president keeps on talking about, well, we need to enable Ukraine to defend itself. And that, it seems to me, is not enough. We really need to see Russia defeated. It's going to be a palpable defeat. It's going to be a meaningful defeat. It has to be publicly seen as that, which means it will be humiliating because, you know, Russia's not going to go away. And even if this ends in like a ceasefire or something like that, they, they will simply come back and it's too dangerous. It's also, you know, one of the points I wanted to make is we're providing lots of stuff, but it's not clear to me still that we're really providing the, the critical things that they need in adequate quantity, things like the HIMARS mobile rocket launchers. And it's not clear that we're, we're doing what they call leading the target. You know, if you ever go skeet shooting, you'll know that if you want to hit the clay pigeon, you know, you don't aim at it while it's flying through the air. You aim a little bit in front of it. And what that means is you've got to be thinking about, OK, well, what do the Ukrainians need? Not today, not next week, but two months from now or six months from now. And above all, I think sometimes our policy elites treat strategy in wartime as something of a chess match. And it can be that to some extent, but it's also got large elements of a bar fight. 
And you've got to approach it that way. And that's, it's not what the you know, policy intellectuals like you and I are best known for. You know, we're probably not the first guys you would call on in a bar fight, but that's the world that you inhabit. The column is basically a, a plea for being quite tough. Last thing I'll, I'll say, which I think is quite important, you know, the Al Capone analogy is actually a good one because Putin is an underworld kind of figure and he approaches the world in, in, in a kind of mafia sort of way. That's the kind of regime we're dealing with. Now, it has an overlay of hyper-nationalist ideology and it has a lot of totalitarian technique that was polished during the Soviet era. But at the end of the day, we're dealing with a mob. And we're dealing with those kinds of criminal kingpins. That's how they view the world. That's how they view us. And we need to fully understand that as we go about dealing with them. You know, Elliot, I miss the days when I would be called on for a bar fight. <laughs> I'm past my prime. <laughs> so, you know, while this war plods on and, you know, as you point out, the Russians from top to bottom in the military have no regard for human life. The war continues on. You think we need to really come at Russia hard right now? You know, this is on several fronts simultaneously. The first and most urgent thing is really make sure that we're not just equipping the Ukrainians to scale, but training them to scale. For example, I, I don't understand why we still don't have a large training mission there, really helping them expand their forces and absolutely supplying what they need. Secondly, it seems to me that as we think about sanctions on Russia... We should be thinking about sanctions not in terms of punishing Russia, because I don't think that matters a lot to them, but weakening Russia. And, and I think we can, you can already begin to see the effect of sanctions on some elements of Russian industry. You know, the, I mean, the startling statistic was, I think, automotive production declined by 96%. Just more significantly, possibly, you know, the Russians are having problems insuring airplanes, which are not going to be getting Western spare parts. Now, so they may be getting things that somebody in Asia cooked up on a 3D printer, you know, in their basement. But you and I wouldn't want to fly in airplanes with those kinds of spare parts. And it, it isn't because Russia is not going to go away and because I don't think Putin is going to be replaced by a liberal Democrat. We need to make sure that it's weaker. And then the, the third thing, which is probably more controversial, and I've got a feeling my, some of my colleagues at CSIS may take exception to this. I talk about how we should think about NATO. I'm very, very glad about NATO expansion, about Finland and Sweden coming in. That's 32 nations. And, you know, NATO operates on the basis of consensus, which is hard. It's kind of unwieldy to have 32. It's already unwieldy at 30. It's profoundly unwieldy. But I said that in terms of dealing with Russia, in some ways, what we have is and should be looking for is a NATO within NATO, which consists of three groups. There's the East Europeans led by Poland, but including the Baltic states, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, maybe. Hungary is a separate case. But which basically, you know, the East Europeans, the Baltics fully understand what Russia is like and are willing to do whatever is necessary. You know, little Estonia has given a higher percentage of its GDP to uh, Ukraine than I think any other country out there. Second group are the Scandinavians, I would say particularly the Finns, but also the Norwegians and quite likely the Swedes, who have a somewhat similar view of the Russians, and particularly the Finns with their long border and their bloody history with Russia. And then the third group are the English-speaking powers, uh, the United States, of course, in the lead, but also Great Britain, which has been, has really turned in a stellar performance during this crisis. 
and Canada, which actually has taken Ukraine quite seriously and has deep social connections to Ukraine. So those, those three groups are going to constitute a kind of NATO within NATO in terms of confronting Russia. And I think if you have that kind of informal internal coalition in NATO, they can actually bring along everybody else. I, you know, one of the things I talk about is you, you would think Germany, France, and Italy, what I call the, the Charlemagne powers, because of their economic heft should lead, but they can't. I mean, Germany just can't. Um, you know, first they helped get us into this mess by a truly irresponsible energy policy and by, you know, really economic ties with, with Russia, which were in some cases downright disgraceful. But also they have a, you know, a feeble military and they find it very hard to follow through on military commitments. France is internally divided just because of what's going on in their domestic politics, but also you know, French presidents, including President Macron, have this way of alienating most of their counterparts in Europe and elsewhere. And then you have Italy, which produces statesmen occasionally, but not statesmanship. So th those countries are not going to exercise leadership, but that alternative coalition absolutely can. And I think bring the rest of NATO along with it. Now, you mentioned HIMARS, the rocket system. We've learned that the Russian forces are advancing not in making deep thrusts into Ukrainian territory like they did initially and were mostly rebuked, but now they're advancing by increments under the cover of artillery. And according to the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, they're massing a very heavy concentration of artillery and armor in, quote, every square kilometer that we, the Ukrainians, are unable to cope with, and this is giving them the advantage. So what can we do now? And as you said, you know, we need to get ahead of the skeet. So, you know, the Ukrainians really can, they've been able to absorb everything we've given them and do well with it. What can we do now to help them out more? So look, I mean, you know, for example, with HIMARS, we have HIMARS in the National Guard. It's okay to take 20 of them out of our inventories and give them to the Ukrainians. I mean, it, this just tells you that you need the absolute maximum. Now, what the Ukrainians are apparently already doing is using HIMARS to attack Russian ammunition dumps. What people need to understand, there's a very big difference between the way the Russians, what Russian artillery is like and what Western artillery is like. The Russians is still kind of World War II style. These are not particularly accurate systems. And you have the idea is you just kind of saturate the area ahead of you with high explosive. Now, if you have unlimited supplies of high explosive, that works. And to some extent, it has worked for them. But, but there are two problems with it. One is even Russia has finite supplies. But secondly, you, you have, means you have to stockpile a lot of this stuff. And that makes it vulnerable. The kinds of systems the Ukrainians are getting are far, far more accurate. So, for example, HIMARS... I think it's circular error probable, which is the, the area within which at least half of the rounds will fall is like three to seven meters. So it's basically pinpoint accuracy. And, you know, the, a lot of the artillery that they're getting, things like the French Caesar 155 millimeter gun howitzer, similar, extraordinarily accurate. And then if you give them fancy ammunition, which can be laser guided or things like that, very, very accurate. So you don't have to match the Russians gun for gun. What you do need to do is make sure that the Ukrainians have a large enough supply of really high-end, long-range precision strike. And 
if they get enough of that, what they can do is they can disrupt Russian logistics very badly. I want to say one, one other thing, if I could, Andrew, because I think it's really important for people who are listening. You know, every war you have ups and downs. Every war, there's a moment where you think your side is losing it. We've been through a period where we've seen a lot of what the, you know was going wrong on the Russian side. Now we're in for a period where we're going to be hearing a lot about what's going wrong on the Ukrainian side, and they're clearly suffering terribly and taking very heavy losses. The thing to remember, war is always a two-sided affair. And what we're not seeing is the strain in the Russian forces in Donbass, because we don't, we don't have journalists there. And, you know, the people who know best are probably listening to radio communications, and even that would be limited. But, you know, you can pick up bits and pieces from the Russian equivalent of Facebook. And we also need to understand that although the, you know, the Ukrainian suffering is most definitely real and their needs are absolutely real, the Ukrainians have been very good at making their case in the West. And they will never have an incentive to say, you know what, we actually have enough and we're really, uh, we're really turning this thing around. That's, or that, they won't have an incentive to say that for quite some time. So you're going to be a little bit reserved in your judgments about what's happening on their side too. The Ukrainians are going to need to continue to make their case because I would say, and I, I'm interested to in know what, what you think, are we really losing momentum in the United States for putting forth effort to help the Ukrainians? I mean, it is not, you know, A1 in the news anymore. You know, we, we have our own problems. You know, I hear people make that argument, Andrew, but I'm not sure I entirely buy it. And the reason why is that I think you know, we don't need to have the public engaged all the time on this one. We're not sending soldiers to go fight this war. What matters is, you know, what the governments are deciding. And, and the fact is we've allocated lots and lots of money and lots and lots of hardware to this effort, whether it's in the headlines in The Washington Post or The New York Times or the St. Louis Dispatch has no impact whatsoever on what Transportation Command is doing in terms of shipping stuff over there. The second thing is, I think as I read the politics, particularly in Congress, first I detect bipartisan consensus, and I don't detect a weakening of resolve. You know, the president is pretty clearly committed. Now, I, I have reservations about his particular line, but he's committed. And, you know, the Republicans, if anything, are criticizing him for not doing more. So I'm, I'm, I'm not as concerned about this as yet. Yeah, everything can change, but I'm not as concerned as some people are. Good to know. Speaking of government officials, Avril Haines, the U.S. Director of National Intelligence, has recently outlined three plausible scenarios for Ukraine. In the first, Russia you know, continues progress in eastern Ukraine, and the outcome is Putin's new goal after being defeated initially is he's able to oust Ukraine's government. In the second scenario, which may be more likely, Haynes said last week that Russia would dominate the East, but would not be able to go much further. And then there's a third scenario where Ukraine would halt Russia's advance in the East and also succeed in launching counterattacks and maybe taking back some territory. What do you think of that analysis? You know, I think it's reasonable, given that it's the future and everything is necessarily a speculation. I think the thing that I would say as a military historian is that don't rule out the possibilities of what are, in effect, collapses, where one side or the other, you know, suddenly some units just say, I can't take this anymore, and they run away, or they surrender en masse, 
or they shoot their officers. You, you know, it could be any of a number of things. And I will not be, you know, I don't know what likelihood to assign to that, but I would not be at all surprised if you see some unit collapses. Elliot, another thing that you wrote about is the British chief of the general staff recently described the Ukraine crisis as a 1937 moment for the West. And you believe that that's pretty acutely accurate. Explain why. So, uh, you know, the Brits occasionally do do this because they do have some very well-educated officers. Of course, 1937 is really the year that World War II began because it's basically the beginning of the Sino-Japanese War. Europeans think the war began in 39. Americans think it began on uh, December 7th, 1941. But I think more accurate uh, date is 1937. And that's what he was thinking. And, And the point he was trying to make was... Okay, this is the moment when you're beginning to see serious violence out there, and the Western powers have a choice about how they're going to deal with it. Now, remember in 1937, what lay in the future was Munich in September of 1938, and the belief that you could appease Hitler or you could buy him off, and in general, that you could avoid conflict if you just worked hard enough at the diplomacy. And obviously, you want to avoid conflict. But I think what he's saying is this is the moment when the West really does need to rearm. And I think he's absolutely right. You know, another dimension that I think has been missing so far has been uh, the kind of industrial policy that you need for large scale rearmament. You know, the lesson that we keep on learning over and over again is you never have enough stuff stockpiled. You never have enough of a warm production base so that you can you know, ramp up production of whatever munitions it is and systems that you need. And the war has reminded us that you know, serious warfare between serious opponents and with all their weaknesses, that's what the Russians are and it's certainly what the Ukrainians are, means a lot of destruction of people and of materiel. And you've got to be prepared to replace both. And you know, replacing materiel is pretty straightforward. You've got to be able to produce the stuff and get it where you need it. The manpower side of it is also critical, and that is, you know, figuring out how you're going to replace losses and how are you going to scale up what you need. And that's it's one of the reasons why actually I would have liked to see a military advisory mission in uh, Kiev. But it's something for us to think about, too, because if we got into a serious conflict, God forbid, with another major power, we'll need to think about, okay, where do you get the replacements from? And how do you train new units? And how can you do it quickly? In World War II, we had developed a system so we could basically turn out a a new infantry division every year. year. It took a year from when you inducted people to when the whole unit was ready to go off to war. That was an amazing organizational accomplishment. I'm not sure we could do that today. I don't think we could do that today. Elliot, insightful and interesting as always. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and helping us better understand this conflict. Always good to be with you, Andrew. Talk to you later. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 